You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In July of 1907, Pope Pius X issued the first of two condemnations of modernism, the second of which would follow a couple of months later. Pius X, whom I mentioned early in the series, was canonized as a saint later, was elected pope in 1903. He had been the Archbishop of Venice. And uh, he was not an intellectual, but he was a deeply pious man, uh, someone whose life was thought to be quite saintly, as it reflected in the fact that he is canonized. And the greatest priority of his pontificate was actually to rekindle Eucharistic piety. And uh, he's famous for the fact that he encouraged frequent communion, which had been discouraged for some centuries. He allowed children to receive communion at pretty much what was called the age of reason, whereas previously people had waited until maybe they were 14. He encouraged the use of Gregorian chant as a way of enhancing the beauty of the liturgy. But he understood quite clearly, and uh, this was certainly made known to him by some of his advisors, the uh, significance of the modernist movement, and he dealt with it swiftly and quite definitively. Now, there has been a tendency on the part of the defenders of the modernists, and it was done even at that time, to disparage Pius X and to say he was an ignorant peasant and that he completely misunderstood the things that he was condemning. But I think that whatever may have been his own abilities or lack of abilities as a theologian, it should be recognized that he did have very competent advisors and knew exactly what he was doing. Vatican documents generally begin, are titled, by the first couple of words of the Latin text. And the first condemnation of modernism in July of 1907 is called Lamentabili Sane Exitu, which means with truly lamentable results. And he goes on to say, our age, casting aside all restraints in its search for the ultimate causes of things, frequently pursues novelties so ardently that it rejects the legacy of the human race. You can see, of course, how that applies here to the church. He's going to say that the modernists are so interested in new things, revisions, etc., that they are rejecting the legacy of the church. Now, we are not going to go through this word for word, but I want to note some of the more important provisions in it. He says, that any scholarly works having to do with the Bible are to be subject to church approval or censorship in the same way that other theological works are. Loisy had tried to make a distinction between historical scholarship and doctrine. And Loisy had said, well, a theologian, of course, his writings might be subject to condemnation, but a biblical critic who is merely stating historical conclusions. This is not within the realm of faith, but the Pope says that those things too, of course, have implications for their faith. 
from the ecclesiastical judgments and censured passed against free and more scientific exegesis, one conclude that the faith the church proposes contradicts history and that Catholic teaching cannot really be reconciled with the true origins of the Christian religion. Bear in mind the statements which are being made here are those which he's essentially condemning. And what he's saying in this particular one is that the new biblical criticism has found that the doctrines of the church cannot be reconciled with the scripture, which are supposed to be their source, and that therefore the doctrines of the church contradict history. The Pope, of course, is condemning them. Even by dogmatic definition, the church's magisterium cannot determine the genuine sense of the sacred scripture. The magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, can never pronounce definitively on what certain passages of the Bible mean. The Pope's condemning that. Only a scholar could do that, is what the modernists were saying, which of course would deprive the church of much of the authority which traditionally has been thought to be invested in it. How does one resolve disputes about the meaning of the Holy Bible if the church cannot pronounce? The church learning and the church teaching collaborate in such a way in defining truths that it only remains for the church teaching to sanction the opinions of the church learning. Now these two phrases, the church teaching and the church learning, are quite ancient. They go way back to patristic times. And the point is that there is the magisterium of the church which teaches, then there are the faithful who receive the teachings, and their reception of the teachings help to make those teachings authentic. But the Pope says the modernists are tending now to say that if really these things originate with the church learning, that is to say they originate with the experience of the people, and then they're merely ratified by the magisterium. They display excessive simplicity or ignorance who believe that God is really the author of the sacred scriptures. The inspiration of the books of the Old Testament consists in this. The Israelite writers handed down religious doctrines under a peculiar aspect, which was either little known or not at all known to the Gentiles. Now this would go along with Loisy's, for example, idea that what religion is, is the developing religious consciousness of the human race. And in this sense, then, the Bible too, the whole biblical tradition, represents the evolving religious consciousness of the human race. Divine inspiration does not extend to all of sacred scripture so that it renders its parts, each and every one, free from error. Or putting it positively, the Pope is saying the, the scripture in all its parts is free from error. The evangelists themselves, as well as the Christians of the second and third generation, artificially arrange the evangelical parables. In such a way, they explain the scanty fruit of the preaching of Christ among the Jews. So, in other words, we don't really know fully what Christ taught and so what we're getting in the Gospels is what the evangelists have said that Jesus taught. In many narrations, the evangelists recorded not so much things that are true as things which, even though false, they judged to be more profitable for their readers. And some of them would have said even the resurrection, an edifying thing. They believed in some sense Jesus was still alive, so they made up the story about the empty tomb. The narrations of John are not properly history, but a mystical contemplation of the gospel. The discourses contained in his gospel are theological meditations, lacking historical truth concerning the mystery of salvation. 
Now, it is true, of course, that the Gospel of John is always thought to be the most theological, even mystical, of the various Gospels. Long discourses or sermons of a theological nature, but the Pope is saying that there is historical elements in the Gospel of John, and those, too, are to be respected. Revelation could be nothing else than the consciousness man acquired of his relation to God, the unfolding of religious consciousness again. Revelation constituting the object of the Catholic faith was not completed with the apostles. Now the Catholic teaching is, of course, that revelation ended with the books of Scripture. So that with the death of the last apostle, we have near what is sometimes called the deposit of faith, and all subsequent theological speculation must grow out of the deposit of faith. Nothing new can be revealed after that. The dogmas the church holds out as revealed are not truths which have fallen from heaven. They are an interpretation of religious facts which the human mind has acquired by laborious effort. The exegete who constructs premises from which it follows that dogmas are historically false or doubtful is not to be reproved as long as he does not directly deny the dogmas themselves. Now this is a subtle point that some of the modernists thought they could get around. Again, the Loisier's distinction between faith and history. We have shown how this particular dogma developed, and we have shown, therefore, that it has not been a consistent teaching of the church from the beginning. But on the other hand, we haven't denied that doctrine. So therefore, you can't condemn us, but the Pope says we can't. The dogmas of the faith are to be held only according to their practical sense, that is to say, as preceptive norms of conduct and not as norms of believing. Well, this is getting a little bit close to Maurice Blondel, who, as I said, thought that he had escaped condemnation here. It certainly must be directed at Lucien Labarthenier that the doctrines are not to be believed in and of themselves, but only insofar as they have some practical relevance. The divinity of Jesus Christ is not proved from the Gospels. It is a dogma which the Christian conscience has derived from the notion of the Messiah. It is permissible to grant that the Christ of history is far inferior to the Christ who is the object of faith. Now this was a very big distinction in liberal Protestant circles around the turn of the century. I mentioned Alfred Schweitzer the other day who was one of the people who did this. What we can learn about Christ from history is minimal. On the other hand, we can believe in Jesus Christ in the terms which have sort of come down to us in the church, a sharp separation between the two. It has the effect, of course, of making belief in Jesus Christ, again, a purely subjective thing. It is not rooted in the objective reality of the historical gospel is the Christ of faith could be someone who never lived, if you conclude that the Christ of faith does not correspond to Jesus of the Gospels. The doctrine concerning Christ taught by Paul, John, and the councils of Nicaea, Ephesus, and Chalcedon is not that which Jesus taught, but that which the Christian conscience conceived concerning Jesus. So a sharp separation between Jesus and everything that comes afterwards. So beginning with Paul, we're already getting interpretations of Jesus and not Jesus himself. Everyone who is not led by preconceived opinions 
can readily see that either Jesus professed an error concerning the immediate messianic coming or the greater part of his doctrine as contained in the Gospels is destitute of authenticism. This is Harnack's idea that Jesus was coming to preach the imminent kingdom. The kingdom would arrive very shortly. And then Harnack's jibe that instead we got the church. And of course, if you believe that Jesus thought that the kingdom was about to arrive, then you are forced to conclude either that he was deluded or that what's contained in the gospel is not authentic. The resurrection of the Savior is not properly a fact of the historical order. It is a fact of merely the supernatural order, which Christian conscience gradually derived from other facts. Again, the distinction between history and faith, one cannot really say historically Jesus rose from the dead. It is something one might believe in. The sacraments had their origin in the fact that the apostles and their successors, swayed and moved by circumstances and events, interpreted some idea and intention of Christ. So in other words, Jesus going forth and saying, baptize all nations, or Jesus at the Last Supper saying, do this in memory of me, or Jesus saying, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven, or the apostles laying on hands and various other things of this kind were not intended by Jesus to be the sacraments of the church, but simply things which later on the church picked up on. The sacraments are intended merely to recall to man's mind the ever-beneficent presence of the Creator, whereas, of course, Catholic doctrine has the sacraments as things which actually bring grace into the soul of the recipient. The elders who fulfilled the office of watching over the gathering of the faithful were instituted by the apostles as priests or bishops to provide for the necessary ordering of the increasing communities and not properly for the perpetuation of the apostolic mission and power. Here's a reference, of course, to the Catholic doctrine of apostolic succession, the bishops as successors of the apostles, that Christ entrusts his authority to Peter and to the apostles they in turn pass it on to their successors. Here, in the liberal Protestant way, the office of bishop is viewed as merely an office which you need to have to run the organization. I mean, you can't have chaos. It was far from the mind of Christ to found a church as a society which would continue on earth for a long course of centuries. On the contrary, in the mind of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, together with the end of the world, was about to come immediately. Dogmas, sacraments, and hierarchy, both their notion and reality, are only interpretations and evolutions of the Christian intelligence, which have increased and perfected by an external series of additions, the little germ latent in the gospel. Now, Newman, as we recall, had used the analogy of the seed and the tree, the acorn and the tree, other things of that kind, and here the Pope refers to the little germ latent in the gospel. But he also uses the phrase increased and perfected by an external series of additions. So what the modernists are here accused of is they don't see, as Newman does, that doctrine grows organically from its seeds, but that other things are imported from the outside. Historical innovations are brought in so that then the development of doctrine is not an authentic development of the original gospel itself. Simon Peter never even suspected that Christ entrusted the primacy of the church to him. 
The Roman church became the head of all churches, not through the ordinance of divine providence, but merely through political conditions. The church has shown that she is hostile to the progress of the natural theological sciences. Truth is no more immutable than man itself, since it evolved with him, in him, and through him. Now here would be a very broad understanding, of course, of Darwinian evolution. That not only do we have biological evolution, but everything, including the idea of truth itself, is constantly undergoing evolution. And there were modernists who did draw that conclusion from Darwinism. Christ did not teach a determined body of doctrine applicable to all times and all men, but rather inaugurated a religious movement adapted or to be adapted to different times and places. So this is the idea that Christ came and preached a kind of a general message of spiritual renewal and moral improvement and so on, but left it fairly general and then others would come along later and make application. Christian doctrine was originally Judaic. Through successive evolution it became first Pauline, then Johannine, finally Hellenic and universal. So this is the idea that Jesus was essentially a Jewish preacher talking in Jewish terms. Paul had already made a sharp break with Jesus when he turned away from the Jewish world into the Gentile world. Then came John, who incorporates a good deal of the Greek outlook in his own theological speculations. And then finally, the adaptation of Greek or Hellenic philosophy as ways of expressing doctrines like the Trinity or the personhood of God. All of which, of course, means then, the Pope says, that we have radically separated ourselves from the original Judaic teachings of Jesus. It may be said without paradox that there is no chapter of Scripture from the first of Genesis to the last of the Apocalypse which contains a doctrine absolutely identical with that which the Church teaches on the same matter. For the same reason, therefore, no chapter of Scripture has the same sense for the critic and the theologian. The distinction here made between the critic and the theologian seems to be the theologian is someone who hands on the teaching of the Church faithfully. The critic is someone who says, no, 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 you're wrong, you're wrong, and by means of a historical analysis attempts to show that there is no continuity. Scientific progress demands that the concepts of Christian doctrine concerning God, creation, revelation, the person of the incarnate word, and redemption be readjusted. The Pope is saying here, in effect, scientific progress is the criterion by which the church itself is to be judged and the teachings of Christianity are to be judged. So a human criterion, namely what people call scientific progress, is given precedence over divine authority. Modern Catholicism can be reconciled with true science only if it is transformed into a non-dogmatic Christianity, that is to say, into a broad and liberal Protestantism. Now, dogmatic Christianity, and Newman talks about this a great deal because he regards it as crucial, is the claim that Christianity teaches truths, that these truths are known, that they are authoritative, that they are universally valid, that they are valid for all time, 
And those, of course, are embodied in the historic creeds and in the decrees of councils and things of that kind. But the Pope says here that the modernists would force us to dispense with dogmas. And we, of course, saw various manifestations of that as we went along. Now, a couple of months later, on September the 8th, the Pope issues a second condemnation, which is titled Pascendi Dominici Gregis, which means feeding the Lord's flock. And it begins one of the primary obligations assigned by Christ to the office divinely committed to us of feeding the Lord's flock is that of guarding with the greatest vigilance the deposit of the faith delivered to the saints, rejecting the profane novelties of words and the gainsaying of knowledge falsely so called. So what is my duty as Pope? My duty as Pope is to protect the flock and to feed the flock. I am remiss if I allow the flock to be fed on bad food or if I do not allow them to be fed at all. And he refers here to the deposit of faith. That's a phrase which the modernists and other liberals have generally regarded as unfortunate. They've rejected it. They think it implies something much too static. The deposit of faith, meaning all the divine revelation, is already present by the time of the death of the apostles. And what remains to be done then is to expound it. And the Pope reaffirms that. There is no revelation after the apostolic age. It must be confessed that these latter days have witnessed a notable increase in the number of the enemies of the cross of Christ, who by arts entirely new and full of deceit are striving to destroy the vital energy of the church, and as far as in them lies, utterly to subvert the very kingdom of Christ. Wherefore, we may no longer keep silence. Now, these are very hard words, and they indicate, of course, that the Pope was perhaps quite personally upset by this. And he, without naming names, of course, is in effect questioning the integrity of some of the people who are here involved. These attacks are not only coming from the outside, but what is to be more dreaded and deplored in her very bosom, and are the more mischievous the less they keep in the open. We allude, venerable brethren, to many who belong to the Catholic laity, and what is much more sad to the ranks of the priesthood itself, who animated by a false zeal for the church, lacking the solid safeguards of philosophy and theology, nay more, thoroughly imbued with the poisonous doctrines taught by the enemies of the church, lost to all sense of moderation, put themselves forward as reformers of the church. He does seem here to concede a certain element of goodwill when he says, animated by a false zeal for the church. Now he also accuses them, of course, of lying, but he seems to be saying they are lying for what they think is a good purpose. They think that they are going to reform the church and make it better. But as a matter of fact, of course, they are helping to destroy it. It is one of the cleverest devices of the modernists, as they commonly are and rightly are called, to present their doctrines without any systematic arrangement in a scattered and disjointed manner 
to make it appear as if their minds were in doubt or hesitant, whereas in reality they are quite fixed and steadfast. Well, this of course is a very serious allegation, which once again comes back to saying that the modernists are dishonest. When he says here that the term modernist, as it is commonly and rightly called, some of the modernists scoffed and answered, but he's the one, the Pope's the one who invented the term. And essentially that's quite true, or seems to be. It is not accurate probably to say that the term was in common use before the Pope himself used it here. The term which some of them preferred was liberal Catholic. Others avoided a term for describing themselves and simply talked about whatever they happened to be interested in. The response of virtually every one of the modernists to these condemnations was to say, well, he's describing a phenomenon that I don't recognize. He is setting up here a straw man. He is putting together a coherent body of opinions to which none of us, in fact, subscribe completely. We are not a school. We don't share all the same ideas. We are not conscious of ourselves as forming a faction or an intellectual school. Modernism is therefore a phantasm of the Pope's imagination, and he is condemning something that doesn't exist and that he doesn't understand. And a great deal of historical activity has gone into evaluating that allegation. Most of the scholarship concerning modernism that is available today is highly sympathetic to the modernists. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. And I think that therefore the modern scholars who have studied the phenomenon have tended to agree with the modernists and to accuse the Pope of painting with too broad a brush and of in fact indeed creating a straw man. Now it's true that as we saw as we went through the various individuals that they're not all in complete agreement with one another. They are seldom, however, to be found in clear disagreement with one another. In other words, the phenomenon of modernism does not show much tendency towards self-criticism. Not only does the individual modernist not criticize his own ideas, but he doesn't tend to criticize the ideas of other modernists either. And it's to be expected, of course, that different ones among them might pick out a different aspect of the question, and someone else emphasizes another aspect of it. But quite clearly, they did have a sense of all being involved in some common enterprise. They did have a sense of fighting against what they thought of as an oppressive intellectual atmosphere. They knew who each other were. They read each other's books. They were in communication with one another. We're talking here again about a very small number of people. The Baron von Hugel especially, as I said, served as a kind of an intermediary among the various modernists. So it is somewhat disingenuous to say that they don't constitute a movement. And if a particular modernist would say about a certain condemnation, 
well, I never held that position. I think that position is false. Certainly there were others who held that position. And yet they chose not to dissociate themselves with it when other modernists were presenting it. I think that the condemnation here pretty well does apply to Alfred Wazi. And as a matter of fact, I think you can take it even farther than the Pope does. And it probably pretty well applies to George Terrell. It's more questionable to what extent it applies to von Hugel, to Blondell, but part of that is simply due to the fact that their own ideas are somewhat ambiguous. Now, the Pope again is attributing to them here dishonesty in saying they pretend to be more hesitant than they really are, or they pretend to be proposing things in a rather tentative way, whereas in reality their opinions are quite fixed and steadfast, he says. Well, it's hard to judge for sure how true that is. The modernists, almost by definition, in the nature of what they were doing, things were moving rather rapidly. We're talking here, after all, about a surprisingly short period of time. Most of this is going on within a period of about 10 years, a little less than 10 years. These are people whose own ideas are evolving pretty rapidly. So it would depend partly on what exact point in time you're talking about. I believe, again, that in some cases, notably Loisy, he was deliberately concealing the full radical nature of his ideas, which he did not reveal to the public until later. But it may not be fair to say of the others, as the Pope does, that they had a whole agenda already worked out. Modernists place the foundation of religious philosophy in that doctrine which is commonly called agnosticism. According to this teaching, human reason is concerned entirely with the field of phenomena, that is to say, to things that appear and in the manner in which they appear. It has neither right nor power to overstep these limits, hence it is incapable of lifting itself up to God and of recognizing his existence by means of visible things. Quite clearly, what the Pope is condemning here, as we've talked about before, is Kantian philosophy. The late 18th century, insisting that the human mind only knows phenomena and does not know things in themselves, a position which becomes in many ways the foundation of all modern philosophy. The Pope calls this agnosticism. Now the word agnosticism is perhaps more commonly used of those people who say they doubt the existence of God, but they're not sure. They say, well, there may be a God, but we don't know. And agnosticism means not knowing. The Pope is using it first here, however, in a philosophical sense. That is to say, those who doubt the power of human reason. Now, there's an interesting sort of paradox here. The modernists thought of themselves as being scientific, of being scholarly. They thought of themselves as being philosophical. They thought of themselves as, in fact, precisely using human reason in a critical way. The Pope, on the other hand, accuses them of downgrading the importance of human reason because they don't think that human reason can arrive at truth. Which side of it is true? Well, they both are. The Pope is correct in seeing that the modern philosophical enterprise has downgraded reason 
considerably below the level that Thomas Aquinas would have exalted it to in the 13th century. But on the other hand, what the modernists had done, they were heirs to the Enlightenment tradition of skeptical reason, doubting reason, reason poking holes in things, reason undermining certitudes, reason calling everything into question, with the possible exception of science, which was thought to be capable of discovering positive truths. The alternative, if you don't think that reason can lead you to the knowledge of God, you don't necessarily become an atheist. The alternative is, in the history of religion, is what is called fideism, from the Latin word for faith. And it means people who say, in effect, I believe because I believe. I don't know why. I can't give you arguments. I have no rational basis for it, but I still believe. And although there have been elements of fideism in the history of the Catholic Church, for the most part it has been a condemned position. And especially the theology of Aquinas, which insisted that there are rational bases for believing. Wazi was not a fideist. It's questionable whether he believed in God. But he kind of left the door open to fideism when he made the distinction between the Christ of faith and the Christ of history. And he said basically, well, you know, the Bible and all that, that doesn't really tell you very much about Jesus. It doesn't give you much basis for believing in him. But if you want to believe in him, all right, go ahead. That is kind of fideism. When natural theology has been destroyed and the road to revelation closed by the rejection of the arguments of credibility, and all external revelation absolutely denied. It is clear that this explanation will be sought in vain, that is to say an explanation of religion, outside of man himself. It must therefore be looked for in man, and since religion is a form of life, the explanation must certainly be found in the life of man. In this way is formulated the principle of religious eminence. Now this is getting to be somewhat complicated, and we'll try to analyze it a bit. Natural theology is the position, of course, which again Aquinas is the chief representative, which says that human reason itself can lead us to God. Natural theology, because we look around us, the world of creation, we see signs of God's existence, and that can lead us to God. Furthermore, when we have come to a knowledge of the existence of God, if we reflect on who God is, or has to be, we know an awful lot about God, that he must be infinite, eternal, all-knowing, all-good, all-wise, all-just, and so forth. But the agnostic philosophy, as the Pope says, coming down from Kant, closes that door. Then the road to revelation is closed by the rejection of the arguments of credibility, meaning here again the credibility of the scriptures. So the critical scripture scholars are now telling us the Bible is not credible either. So not only does reason not lead you to God, you can't rely on the Bible either. Well, what then is religion, the Pope says? Well, it has to be a purely human phenomenon. And we must look for the explanation of religion in man himself. In this way is formulated the principle of religious eminence. Now, if Blondell thought that he was not being referred to here, that particular sentence would seem to suggest that he was. Whether the Pope fully understood Blondell or not, or whether Blondell was expressing himself correctly or not, this seems to be aimed at him, as well as to perhaps von Hugel. 
religious eminence, you'll remember, is Blondell's argument that the transcendent, what is higher, what is spiritual, what is divine, is actually to be found in the mundane. It is not separated from us, but it is to be found in our own experience, in the experience of our world. It is imminent, it is contained here. Moreover, the first actuation, so to speak, of every vital phenomenon, again, this seems to be Blondell who called his book Action, and the Pope refers to the first actuation, which means here the first manifestation or the first embodiment, the first clear sign of every vital phenomenon is due to a certain need or impulsion. But speaking more particularly of life, it has its origins in a movement of the heart, which movement is called a sense. This again seems very much like Blondell, a need or an impulsion towards God. Therefore, as God is the object of religion, we must conclude that faith, which is the basis and foundation of all religion, must consist in a certain interior sense originating in a need of the divine. The problem here, as the Pope sees it, and he will go on to talk about it a little later, is again that this makes it all very subjective. Maybe there is this sense of need, maybe there is this, but religious belief cannot be placed on a foundation of subjectivity. It may perhaps be asked how it is that this need of the divine, which man experiences within himself, resolves itself into religion. To this question, the modernist would reply as follows. Science and history are confined within two boundaries, the one external, namely the visible world, the other internal, which is consciousness. When one or other of these limits has been reached, there can be no further progress, for beyond is the unknowable. In the presence of this unknowable, whether it is outside man and beyond the visible world of nature, or lies hidden within the subconsciousness, the need of the divine in a soul which is prone to religion excites a certain special sense, and this sense possesses, implied within both itself as its own object and its extrinsic cause, the divine reality itself, and in a way unites man with God. Now this is very complicated, but what the Pope is saying here is that what the modernists will say is human studies, human reason, does reach its limits. So uh, if you're following the path of science, sooner or later you arrive at a point where the scientist has to admit he can't explain something. And similarly with regard to the study of human history. At that point there is the unknowable. If there is a natural desire for God, a need for God, a tendency towards God in the human person, then at that point the human soul reaches out towards the unknowable. And this is what they mean as man uniting with God. Now I skipped a section when I was reading that, a kind of a parenthesis, in which he says that this reaching out, according to the principles of fideism, without any previous advertence of the mind. And we've already talked about what fideism is. The Pope is obviously dismissing fideism or condemning it, an approach to God which rests upon no rational foundation. The First Vatican Council of 1869 and 70 had declared, among other things, that the human mind is capable of knowing the existence of God. And so Pius X is here recalling that. 
It is in this sense to which the modernists give the name of faith. This is what they hold to be the beginning of religion. And this is not line for line, as I've said. From this, venerable brethren, springs the most absurd tenets of the modernists, that every religion, according to the different aspects under which it is viewed, must be considered as both natural and supernatural. Which again sounds like Blondell. It is thus that they make consciousness and revelation synonymous. So religious consciousness, by which we think about God, we think about our place in the universe, we think about spiritual realities, is the same as revelation, which of course is divine truth coming down from on high. From this they derive the law laid down as the universal standard, according to which religious consciousness is to be put on an equal footing with revelation, and that to it all must submit, even the supreme authority of the church must submit. Certainly this is Wazi, the evolving religious consciousness of mankind, which is really what religion is all about. It's nothing any more than that. And hence, if the church resists the revolving religious consciousness of mankind, the church is failing. This then is the origin of all, even of supernatural religion. All religions are mere developments of this religious sense, nor is the Catholic religion an exception. And yet, venerable brethren, these are not the foolish babblings of unbelievers. These are Catholics, yea, priests too, who say these things openly. And they boast that they are going to reform the church by these ravings. Thus, in their books, one finds some things which might well be approved by a Catholic. But in turning over the page, one is confronted by, among other things, which might well have been dictated by a rationalist. When they write history, they make no mention of the divinity of Christ. But when they are in the pulpit, they profess it clearly. Again, when they are dealing with history, they take no account of the fathers and the councils. But when they catechize the people, they cite them respectfully. In the same way, they draw their distinctions between exegesis, which is theological and pastoral, and exegesis, which is scientific and historical. Now, one might think, well, what's going on here is just a separation of two different functions. But I think what the Pope is suggesting here is that there's a dishonesty involved again. And I also think, though, he's going a bit farther, and he's implying that even in their professional tasks as historians or as biblical critics, they cannot exclude the element of faith. They cannot bracket it and pretend that it doesn't exist. Lastly, maintaining the theory that the faith must be subject to science, they continuously and openly rebuke the church on the grounds that she resolutely refuses to submit and accommodate her dogmas to the opinions of philosophy while they, on their side, having for their purpose blotted out the old theology, endeavor to introduce the new theology, which shall support the aberrations of philosophers. Here, in a way, the Pope is getting to the crux of the matter. If the church is divinely ordained, if the scriptures are divinely inspired, how can purely human, purely rational judgments be brought to bear to discredit it? The modernist answer, or at least the Loisy answer, would be to say, well, these things aren't divinely ordained, obviously. He also alludes here to the claim that church and state must be separated from one another, which is a conflict that goes on throughout the 20th century. It doesn't say that they can't be separated from one another, but he says that they don't have to be. 
these two documents bring an end essentially to the modernist movement because again they are people who are very few in number with very limited influence and especially the clergy among them who either leave the ranks of the priesthood or are kind of forced into a silence and the movement then essentially is dead. In 1910 the Pope required that every priest in the world was required to take every year an oath against modernism that he did not adhere to any of the tenets of modernism. And it's often been said that a reign of terror follows from this in which there are very zealous, even if you will, fanatical people determined to see modernism everywhere and determined to ferret it all out. It is claimed that when Pope John XXIII was elected in 1958, he got his own file out and discovered that back about 1910, he had been accused of modernism. And there is no question that some excesses did in fact occur. False accusations, loose claims, whispering campaigns, not much concern for actual documentation. Pius X dies in 1914, and the man who succeeds him under the name of Benedict XV supposedly discovered that his file also indicated that he was suspected of modernism. Benedict XV certainly was not a modernist, nor was he sympathetic with modernism. However, when he was an archbishop in Italy, he had taken some steps to protect people whom he thought had been falsely accused. And one, I think, can legitimately say that there was an excessive reaction to modernism that followed after the year 1907 and lasted for about seven or eight years. It raises, however, an interesting question. If modernism died out, disappeared as a visible movement, and of course the people involved were dead, although some lived remarkably long, Maurice Blondel until 1949. Did the movement as a set of ideas die? And there are some present-day Catholics who believe that modernism survived underground, secretly, by kinds of networks of modernists who knew one another and supported one another but cleverly concealed themselves from church authorities until they thought that it was safe again to stick their heads above water basically at the time of the Second Vatican Council. There are extreme conservative Catholics who in fact treat the Second Vatican Council as though it were a modernist conspiracy. I don't believe myself that there did exist a conscious underground that is to say, a network of people who saw themselves as keeping the flame lighted until such time as they could raise it again. I think, though, that after all, the modernists were raising certain questions which would occur to people from time to time. And the modernist books might be condemned, but they did exist in libraries and people could read them. And I think if one might criticize one thing about the papal condemnation, it is that dealing with these things by fiat, that is to say by condemnation, by saying shut up, that's the end of it, while it accomplishes certain things, leaves an open agenda 
because it means that these same ideas are going to come back at some future time. They haven't so much as been refuted or discredited as they have been suppressed. So by the 1950s or 60s, theologians were beginning to think along some of the same lines as the modernists. In my lifetime, going back about 40 years or so, I have noticed three distinct stages in the attitude towards modernism. Back about 1960, many Catholic scholars would have said the Pope was right to condemn modernism, the modernists were way off base, and he should have condemned them. But what is going on today in liberal Catholic circles bears no resemblance to modernism. The second stage, which began shortly after the Second Vatican Council, was to say the modernists were treated very unfairly. They were not heretical. Pius X overreacted. He was guilty of some kind of hysteria. And he basically slandered them in his various condemnations. And they were good, loyal, orthodox theologians whose careers were destroyed. The third stage, which begins certainly by about 1970, is to say the Pope was right about the modernists. They were not orthodox Catholics. They weren't teaching things that were compatible with Catholic doctrine. But they were right and he was wrong. And we ourselves will now publicly join ourselves with the modernists and we will make the same criticisms of Catholic teaching that they made. And so if you talk about certain contemporary theologians like Hans Kuhn, for example, that would be, I think, precisely his position. Although many of our contemporary, if we call them liberal theologians, have actually gone considerably beyond most of the modernists. One final point which is worth making, in the previous lecture I talked about the fact that the church continued to flourish after the condemnation of modernism. It's worth noting that the intellectual life of the church actually also continued to flourish. There is a 20th century Catholic intellectual revival of Etienne Gilson, Jacques Maritain, great novelists like Graham Greene, Evelyn Waugh, Francois Mariac. We could go on and on, great historians like Christopher Dawson. Many of these people converts and people who were attracted to the church to the orthodox variety of Catholicism upheld by Pius X not attracted to the modernist versions that was condemned. And if we take the great flourishing of Thomistic philosophy in the 20th century, respected even in some non-Catholic circles, represented again by Gilson or Maritain, the modernists would have thought that was impossible. They were so blind that they thought that there was nothing of any real value in the philosophy of Thomas Aquinas. So it's one other way in which one might say that they missed the boat, I think, of history. They raised some important and legitimate questions, but I think that their answers were not, in the end, very helpful. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.